You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and today we're going to discuss some more coronavirus. Now, I know it's getting to be a little bit like a broken record talking about coronavirus, but one of the major themes of our show is to try and promote free market healthcare solutions and to point out the failures of socialized medicine. And nothing illustrates the failure of government-run healthcare than the COVID-19 pandemic and our response to it. And I'd like to go over some of those things today to help you see why we need to fight for free market solutions to our health care and abandon any effort to push towards socialized medicine. Now, most people are aware that we've been suffering from a coronavirus pandemic that has swept across the world and caused tremendous damage. Um, people obviously have been killed by this disease, and it poses a serious threat to our world. But our response to it, <clears throat> excuse me, our response to it has been somewhat confusing. And to an observer like me, uh, I've learned a lot of information about just how incapable the government is at running our health care. The response to the pandemic has been basically abysmal in every way. Our understanding of the virus and how it's transmitted uh, was wrong and presented it to us wrong. The treatments available, whether it be masks or hydroxychloroquine, have all been wrong. The estimation of the number of deaths that were going to occur as high as 2.2 million turned in the United States alone turned out to be wrong. The mortality rate, wrong. Our need for ventilators, uh, the spread of the, the disease, all of these aspects of this pandemic were presented to us erroneously by our government officials, and nothing has really illustrated to me the importance of free market solutions to healthcare than our response to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, on this show, we talk about the difference between socialized medicine, where government implements a top-down, one-size-fits-all medical program versus free market medicine where individuals with the counsel of their doctors make their own decisions. And our argument is that free market health care gives us the highest quality medicine with the most choices at the lowest price and is the greatest innovator of new medical technology, whereas government-run health care is a one-size-fits-all, expensive, ineffective means of the delivery of health care. And again, this coronavirus pandemic has illustrated that in ways that, that, uh, that are really going to be helpful to us at understanding this. Now, we talk about health care in this country is predicated on the Hippocratic method, which is focus on the individual and the doctor-patient relationship. We, as physicians, we take the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm, and it's based on 
a doctor-patient relationship where the doctor's fidelity is to the treatment of their patient and not to some government entity or to some employer. This contrasts with the type of health care that was advocated by Plato, who believed that health care should be administered by the state for the benefit of the state and not necessarily to the benefit of the individual. And boy, have we seen that with this COVID-19 outbreak. When we go back to the beginning, I've told all of you uh, that I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. I have uh, five clinics, 130 employees. We have a surgery center. We have a pretty big operation. And because it is run in a free market fashion, our commitment is to our patients. Our fidelity is to our patients. And we were able to digest the information that became available with coronavirus not through the filter of some government agency, but just looking at the data ourselves and make decisions about how to run our practice. And we were able to stay nearly completely open, and we haven't had a single incident in terms of somebody getting sick uh, and having a problem with the coronavirus. Now, we have come across individuals that tested positive for coronavirus, but nobody has actually gotten seriously sick. And we were able to keep our clinics open, to treat other people's medical problems, to continue operating on people who had uh, surgical needs. And we were able to do this safely and effectively because we were able to digest the information available to us and make decisions that were in the best interests of our patients. Now, we contrast that with the government line, which we know that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks have been the face of this, have been basically wrong on every aspect of the disease. And we can go back to the uh, beginning of the pandemic around January of 2020, and we know that Fauci was parroting the Chinese government's assertion that there was nothing to worry about here. He told us that the, the coronavirus pandemic, which was not a pandemic at that time, that, that basically posed no threat. Now, I have let you all know that I was aware that something was going on in China through my social media and my Facebook. I've explained that I'm on email chains and text chains with doctors from around the country and around the world, and we typically will discuss poignant medical issues of the day. It became... I became aware that something was going on in China, and I didn't really know the extent of it, just that there was a new what seemed to be virus going around, and I was kind of keeping an eye on it, seeing what was going to happen, and eventually I learned that there was a coronavirus. Now, coronavirus, as we've talked about on this show many times, is uh, a type of virus that makes up the group of viruses that we commonly refer to as the flu season every year. Now, this particular corona COVID-19 virus is a unique strain, just like every year when the flu comes back, it's a little bit different from the flu the year before. It's a different strain. We hadn't seen this one before, but we have had experience with coronavirus in general. So we do have some understanding of its mode of transmission, what it affects, basically our respiratory tract, 
kind of the problems that it causes. And we can look at other coronavirus infections and have an idea about what we were expecting. Now, at the time that I was making this analysis, I was watching the news and they were saying nothing about this. Initially, they said there was nothing to see here. China was telling us there was nothing to see here. The World Health Organization, which is an arm of the United Nations, and we talk about it commonly on this show, that the United Nations does not necessarily have the best interests of the United States at heart. Uh, The WHO was telling us that nothing was wrong. Now, eventually... The disease got more serious. We started realizing that people in China were really suffering. And what became odd was China shut down travel within China because they knew that the disease was dangerous. But they did not shut down travel worldwide. And the World Health Organization, by keeping this information quiet and continuing to support the Chinese communist country's assertion that this virus was not transmitted person to person. Um, This allowed infected people from China to travel the world and essentially release this pandemic on the world. And it is not an exaggeration or hyperbolic to say that the World Health Organization played a role in this. And the reason that this occurred is because of what we say about government-run health care. The World Health Organization is, ex- is essentially a political body that has political affiliations and political um, motivations. Their moves, their, their decisions and the actions that they take are motivated by the incentives that they have, and most of their incentives are political. If we look at the World Health Organization director, uh, his first name is Tedros. The rest of his name is very complicated. We just refer to him as Director Tedros. This is a person who comes from Ethiopia, and Ethiopia is a relatively poor country, And a lot of the development of Ethiopia comes from an influx of capital from China. So Director Tedros, for a variety of reasons, has a fidelity to the Chinese Communist Party to keep them happy and to basically not go against the Chinese Communist government. And as a result, we get erroneous information. Now, Donald Trump correctly looked at what was going on in China, assessed the threat, and in my view, correctly banned travel from China in January of 2020. Now, at the time that he did this, Director Tedros of the World Health Organization actually chastised countries for banning travel in in accordance with the Chinese Communist Party's wishes. Now, I'm looking at this from a frame of reference back then without obviously having an understanding of how this pandemic was going to roll out. It was obviously before the lockdowns, but I began looking at the information and my initial concern was, who does this disease affect? Because we all know, or at least in the medical community, we all know that different flus are different. Sometimes the flu attacks young people, sometimes it 
attacks older people, and sometimes it's more evenly distributed across the board. And the reason I, I use flu as an example, even though the coronavirus is not the same thing, is that there are some corollaries. Both diseases are viral, diseases that cause respiratory tract infections. They're both diseases that come around on a yearly basis uh, and cause problems. So as the pandemic proceeds, it starts to travel worldwide. We're starting to see problems uh, in countries across the world. The first countries we really started to see issues were Italy and South Korea. Uh, Of note, Taiwan, which is uh, the uh, non-communist country that is near China, and they have a long history of China claims sovereignty over Taiwan. Taiwan is an independent nation because the World Health Organization is influenced significantly by China. Taiwan is is banned basically from membership into the World Health Organization. At this same time, Taiwan was telling the World Health Organization that something was going on with this coronavirus and they were being ignored by the World Health Organization. Now, understanding sort of all these political affiliations between China and Tedros, who's from Ethiopia, and Taiwan is really not important. The bottom line is to understand that there are political motivations here that affect the decisions that these entities make and the information that we get. And that that information and that those decisions are not necessarily in our best interest. And what I'm trying to illustrate is this is why we can never accept socialized medicine. Because socialized medicine is draconian and it is a horrible way to deliver health care to individuals. Now, as this pandemic progresses, and we're getting information from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, who initially told us there was no problem here. There was actually a tweet that went out by the World Health Organization say there's no evidence of human-to-human transmission and that there's no need to ban travel. Well, suddenly that changes, right? So the disease gets out. People in Italy are dying at a seemingly high rate. Um, It's spreading to South Korea, to other countries. We're starting to see cases in the United States. And Dr. Fauci comes on TV and tells us that there's absolutely no need for any masks, that it probably won't help. And I basically agreed with his assessment. Now, the masks are very complicated. And I full disclosure, my wife has been studying it a lot. And she is an attorney. She's not a doctor, but she's a very smart, educated person. And she and I are debating masks back and forth. And so I have promised her that I would do some research on the masks and do my latest update of an assessment of the information. But suffice it to say that at this point, there is no evidence that I am aware of that proves that masks are effective at preventing transmission of coronavirus. We know that it does not, there are lots of studies out there to demonstrate that it is not effective at the transmission of the flu virus, which again has some similarities to coronavirus. And I think we can extrapolate some reasonable information from that. And the the masks have also deteriorated sort of into a political symbol. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit later, but this government 
has taken the pandemic and really used it to assert its force. And in my view, the wearing of the masks is akin to uh, forcing us to bend the knee. Now, I have no problems uh, learning and keeping an open mind and doing things that make sense, but I refuse to wear a mask because other people are uncomfortable that I'm not wearing a mask. Masks, in my view, could be a negative influence on the transmission of the coronavirus. I'm a surgeon. I wear masks just about every day or at least every week, and I hate them. I put them on. They make my nose run. They make my eyes water. They irritate my face and make me want to touch and scratch and itch my face and and wipe my nose and wipe my eyes. And in my view, these are the very things that we don't want you to do when you're trying to contain a dangerous respiratory virus. And the other thing is the masks that people wear are not preventing transmission of the virus. So if you have an N95 mask, which is a specific kind of mask, most people are not wearing that. I mean, that mask is really not what you're seeing people wear on the streets. A cloth mask or these kind of little paper masks with the little things that go over your ears are definitely not doing anything. And there's some question that a surgical mask, like what I use in surgery, may prevent the um, the distance that some of these large droplets that may contain virus go, but they're not preventing the, the droplets from getting into the atmosphere and causing this problem. And so... Anyway, I digress a little bit on the mask, but the point I'm trying to make is that Fauci initially came out and told us that masks were not really helpful and necessary, and I agree with that. He subsequently changed his tune, and, you know, you see him every time on TV, he's always wearing a mask, and it's fairly obvious that it's a political statement. You'll see Trump in the foreground at the podium talking, no mask, and then you'll see Dr. Fauci standing behind him, clearly displaying his masked face. Of course, we all know that when the television cameras go off, the masks go off, and it's become this sort of political tool, which is really not helpful to the rest of us who are just trying to figure out a way to get through this pandemic without having our businesses destroyed and without getting sick. So we move along with this pandemic, and suddenly, uh, I believe sometime in March, I think it was March 11th, the uh, lockdowns come into place. Now, the lockdowns were predicated on some uh, information that uh, was very dubious in nature, and I don't want to get into the details of it, but it originally started from a science project from a high school student who did a computer modeling of how many people uh, you would come in contact with in a given day and that if you did lockdowns that you could can, that you could uh, decrease these contacts and that there would be this sort of predictable decrease in the transmission of disease and due to the relationship of this high school student to their uh, father who was in, in the uh, Bush administration, this information sort of made it up uh, through the government and ended up becoming policy for the management of this pandemic despite absolutely no scientific evidence to support its efficacy. And I'm watching this, just like you folks. I'm at home, and I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And some of the questions that were important to me were, 
who does this affect? That was my number one thing. I want to know what is the percentage of people of dying? Because just like flu, I don't want to get the flu, but I don't live my life in peril and fear and I don't cower in my basement because I might get the flu. I try to do common sense things. I don't, you know, kiss everybody that I see. I don't touch un- unnecessary, you know, I don't, I don't unnecessarily touch surfaces on doorknobs. I'm actually sort of germophobic about that stuff. Um, I wash my hands frequently. Anybody who knows me I might, might even argue that I'm a little bit pathologic about that. I use hand sanitizer a lot. It's just my normal behavior. And these are the sort of things that I would expect people to do. Uh, but <clears throat> I never believed that a lockdown was going to solve this kind of problem, and no doctor would. But somehow this became part of the national paradigm, and for whatever reason, Fauci and Burks, because they have shown themselves to be political animals and not driven by necessarily what's in the best interests of their patients to give us information that we're genuflecting on. You know, it's not human-to-human transfer. No, it is human-to-human transfer. Uh, there's nothing to worry about here. Travel, go on cruise ships, do whatever you want. Oh, no, we need to lock down. Uh, masks are important. No, they're not important. Yes, they are important. They just keep flip-flopping back on this stuff. And as an physician, as an educated person looking into this stuff, I started asking myself, what are the things I want to know? And the most important thing was, who is this affecting and what is the mortality rate? And I was able to start counting the numbers up in Italy. I could go on certain websites. I went on Worldometer, and they would give you these numbers of uh, people that were, you know, basically infected, the number of people who were dying. And it was very easy for me. I shouldn't say very easy, but it was obvious to me by going in and looking at each individual patient and looking at their age that this disease was affecting very old people, typically who had comorbid conditions. They came out very quickly in the pandemic with information from Italy showing that uh, I want to say it was something like 50% of people were in their 70s and 80s with at least um, with uh, three comorbid conditions and upwards of 90% had one comorbid condition. So that to me was very enlightening, very important information. And also, we were seeing that school-aged children were largely unaffected by this. Now, I'm not a genius. I'm a doctor. I'm trained. I know what I'm looking for. And I'm thinking to myself, Fauci has to know this too. But why are they not giving us the appropriate information? Why are they not letting us know that this mortality is affecting a certain population of people, primarily patients in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions? Why are they not telling us that young people are are largely unaffected by this disease? And that started getting my antenna up. Why are they not giving me important information? So I started noticing as time went on, I'd get up every morning, I'd go on uh, Worldometer, I'd go on the Georgia Department of Health and some of these websites to kind of keep a track on what's going on. I want to know who's getting infected, how many hospital admissions we're getting, and most of all, who's dying. Because really, in the end, that's important. That's the important thing. It's not getting sick. It's not testing positive. It's are you dying from this disease? That's the thing we're worried about. And the reason I say that is because that's what we do with flu. 
The the, uh, Asian flu that we had in the 50s, uh, the late 50s, I want to say it was 57, 58, had a mortality rate around 0.67. Well, that's more than what we're seeing with the coronavirus, and we didn't do anything like lock down the world for that. We've had other other disease outbreaks, uh, flus and things of that nature in the past, the SARS outbreak in 2003, the H1N1 in, um, in 2008, 2009, uh, and we did not respond the way we're responding to the coronavirus, and the numbers are at least similar, but yet we're behaving in a very different way, and why is that? Now, I'm no conspiracy theorist. I, I like to look at data myself and make my own decisions. My father taught me that people do what they are incentivized to do. And so when you want to try and find out somebody's motivations, you need to assess what is what are their incentives, what benefits them. So when I look at Tedros, the leader of the World Health Organization. Why would he parrot the Chinese Communist Party's narrative that this disease was not dangerous, that it was not spreading? Why would he go out of his way to praise the Chinese Communist Party's response to the outbreak when China was banning travel within China but allowing travel to the rest of the world? when they were not allowing people to come in and assess the information so that we could better prepare ourselves to manage the pandemic, when they were basically lying to the world, why would Tedros go out and parrot the Chinese Communist Party's narrative? Well, you can just look at his incentives. He's from Ethiopia, and China has an enormous impact on the development of Ethiopia. And if China were to withdraw their investment of capital and resources, that would significantly affect Ethiopia. I'm not trying to get into any indictment of Tedros. I'm simply making the point that people do what they are incentivized to do. So now I'm watching this pandemic unfold in our country. And that includes me, by the way. I do what I'm incentivized to do. So I have a practice. I'm taking care of my patients. When I see a patient, my fidelity is to that patient. I am incentivized to do a good job for the patient who is in front of me because I want to grow my business. I want to grow my practice. I want that patient to to leave and go out into the world and tell everybody what a great experience they had visiting with me, and hopefully that will grow my business. That's what I am incentivized to do. I'm not incentivized by an employer who works at a hospital who's trying to ration resources and things of that nature. And it's very important that you understand that because the reaction to this COVID-19 pandemic really exposes just how powerful perverse incentives can be to behavior to the point where people are making pretty disgusting recommendations, decisions that are literally resulting in the deaths of other Americans. And that to me, is more of a clarion call to resist the implementation of socialized medicine than than anything else we could see. And that is why I'm making such a big deal about the coronavirus and and we're going to talk about when we get back from the break, the hydroxychloroquine. Um, So let's leave it right there while we go to break. When we come back, I'm going to discuss some of the perverse 
actions that were taken in response to the COVID-19 and try and help people understand why they occurred. Be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and today we're discussing the political influence on the decisions made during the coronavirus pandemic and trying to illustrate how government entities do not have your best interest in heart. They cannot protect you. They will not protect you. And we have to fight for free market medicine reform and oppose socialized medicine at every turn. And nothing illustrates the need to do this greater than our response to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, we were talking before the break about why we got such poor information. And we did get poor information. We talked about it Throughout this pandemic, we've been given information from Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and other government entities, the World Health Organization, initially telling us that there were going to be 2.2 million American deaths. Uh, that was after they told us that there was nothing to see here, there was no threat in China, and that we should continue to travel and that we should actually go on um, cruise ships. Uh, Nancy Pelosi telling us to go down to Chinatown and have a great time. That was uh, then altered. Uh, they originally told us that there was no human-to-human transfer. Then they changed their mind. Yes, there is human-to-human transfer. By the way, me as an individual, a doctor, uh, I called this pandemic exactly right. And by that, I mean When they were saying, do not wear masks, I was kind of like, okay, well, I don't know for sure. When they were saying no human-to-human transfer, I was saying, well, wait a second, we don't know that yet because I understand um, 
the 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 nature of these viruses and how they're transmitted when they were talking about um, not banning travel i was like wait a second this is exactly the time to ban travel they told us that the death toll was going to be enormous they've been basically misleading us on the mortality rate since day one i know that the world health organization initially said that the mortality rate was 3.4 percent and i immediately knew that that was ridiculous and the reason is they were only evaluating people that were in hospitals that were deathly ill. So, of course, if you're only taking the very sickest and and calculating the number of deaths, you're going to get a high mortality rate. But we should have known, I did know, and I know they knew too, that there are a lot of people that are asymptomatic, just like with flu. Some people get mild disease. You don't even know you have it sometimes. Sometimes it's so minimal you don't even care, and you're certainly not going to a hospital. None of those people were counted in the mortality rate complica- uh, calculation. And now we've seen that on the CDC's own website that they have a 0.26% mortality rate, and it's going down. Now, that is great news. The mortality rate is going down, but what do they present to us on TV every day? Now, I got up to get ready for this show this morning. I turned on Fox News, and they had the dramatic music in the background. Da-na-na-na. And uh, they're saying, you know, there's a rise in, in coronavirus cases, and there's going to be lockdowns again in these states. And they put a picture of the United States up, and they show the different states where they're seeing an, an increase in, in cases. Well, they're basically, and at this point, I'm just going to say it, they're lying to us. They are simply, there are people and entities that are benefiting from high coronavirus uh, infection rates and sickness rates that are doing everything in their power to try and keep their numbers up so they can justify this lockdown and continue to keep us redline hysterical to continue to keep the economy disrupted and you might ask yourself why would they do this well we have to go no farther than uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's tweet the other day where she basically said we have to keep the lockdowns in place I'm paraphrasing of course we have to keep the lockdowns in place because it damages the economy and a damaged economy will help us get rid of Trump and basically losing a few businesses is a small price to pay for getting rid of Trump now she eventually took it down but not after it had been retweeted something like 20,000 times so we know that this is in the mind of people that a damaged economy is is working against the re-election of Donald Trump, and there are people in government uh, that would greatly benefit uh, from seeing Donald Trump leave office. So we know that there are people that don't have our best interests at heart that are vested in trying to keep these numbers elevated, and because I work on the inside, I can see this. So we've seen that on the CDC's own website, that the mortality rate has dropped down to flu levels. Have any of you heard that on the news? Is or Have any of you read that in your newspaper articles? Uh, no. They continue to tell us, we got new cases, more new cases. Well, the reason we have all these new cases is because the testing has become available. And by the way, the testing is another evidence of the corruption. If you're not sick, then why do you need to be tested? We are not quarantining people for this disease. It's not the kind of disease that you quarantine people for. 
We quarantine sick people. So getting tested if you're not sick is irrelevant. And if you're mildly sick, most of us, when I get the flu, I don't go running to the hospital every time. If I'm not that sick, I just stay away from people. I wash my hands. I take some cold medicine. I rest up, drink fluids. And then when it passes, I get back with my life. Well, that's what we should be doing with this coronavirus, but we're not. We're counting numbers. We're getting red line hysterical. You know, they're talking about maybe the second wave is coming. uh, And they're talking about doing lockdowns again. Why in the world are they doing this? Well, we already talked about one of the examples or one of the reasons is lockdown negatively impacts Donald Trump because it damages our economy. But this is not supported by the numbers. And I know this. I have privileges at most of the hospitals in the Atlanta area. And because of that, I get emails that give me information about the numbers of admissions and ICU beds and all of these things. And I've been able to count them up myself. And one of the things interesting that I've noted is anytime they want me to see, whether it's the Georgia Department of Health or whatever, the CDC website, if they want me to see that the number of cases is increasing, they'll have these bar charts and these pie charts that make it really easy to see while there's an increased number of diagnosed cases. But anything that would reveal that the people who are affected are primarily people in their 70s and 80s with these comorbid conditions, they never have pie charts or bar graphs to easily illustrate that. I have to go in myself and I have to count up the patients against the total. I have to go in and look at all their ages. I basically have to do a ton of work to say to myself, well, wait a second. The most important thing, they're bearing the lead here, is there is a vulnerable population, primarily patients in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions. What they're keeping from us is information like the fact that we now know that a supermajority of people, a supermajority, meaning in, in many of these studies, 60%, 70%, 80%, even 90% of people are either asymptomatic or so minimally symptomatic that they don't even really know they're sick. Well, why is this important? Well, it's because it illustrates that the vast majority of people are not getting sick and dying from this disease. The vast majority of, of us are safe from this disease. And why are they not telling us this? We have evidence from prison systems where they've looked at prisons and noted that a supermajority of people are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. They've looked at nursing homes, even nursing homes, where we have the vulnerable people, old and sick people, older and sicker people. Even they show 60% of those patients are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic with this coronavirus. We've seen it on cruise ships. Um, We've seen it in some of these military ships. We have data that demonstrates to us that the vast majority of people who contract this disease are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. And the reason that this is important is it tells us that quarantine is not effective. The disease is out and it is spreading. And the the ultimate end point of this is that the disease will spread throughout the population and we will eventually achieve herd immunity And it's going to behave like every other virus we've ever dealt with throughout humanity. It will become less of an issue. Now, the powers that be are not letting this happen. They're not even telling us about herd immunity. Now, I was getting ready to do a radio spot 
uh, discussing the coronavirus pandemic a week or two ago. And so I decided to go and brush up on my herd immunity that I learned in medical school. And so I went into my office and I got out my textbook and I started reading about it to understand it. And for those of you who are not familiar with herd immunity, basically what happens with a virus like this is it spreads throughout the population. A lot of people are immune to the disease and a lot of people basically don't really get sick with this disease. But once they get sick and they develop antibodies to the, the, the disease, they become uh, immune to it. Uh, those people being immune sort of act as blockers so that somebody who's sick can't really get to me because there's too many people that are immune that won't allow the virus to propagate from person to person. And we refer to this as herd immunity. And herd immunity is different for different viruses depending on how infectious the virus is and how resistant certain people are to it. And so sometimes herd immunity might happen when 70% of the people are infected, meaning when 70% of the people are infected, that's enough blocking to prevent the other 30% from contracting the disease. Uh, other times it's lower. Now, with this particular virus, because the um, there's differences between individuals in how infectious they are, meaning how, how um, aggressively they spread the disease, and their differences in... Um, how susceptible people are. So some people are very susceptible. Some people are not very susceptible. Some people really spread the disease. Some people don't really spread the disease. And because of these differences, it is estimated that the herd immunity necessary in the coronavirus, this current coronavirus, COVID-19, is anywhere between 10 and 20 percent, maybe maybe 30 percent. So much lower than a typical 70 percent. Well, that's huge news. That's amazing. That's great news. Have you guys heard it anywhere? Am I probably the first person to tell you about this? Why is that? Why is there such an effort to prevent you guys from getting any good news? All you get is red line hysterical. I turn the news on for five seconds. My wife and I have basically stopped watching the news. I just can't take it anymore. But I got up this morning to get ready for this show. I turned it on five seconds, and they're telling me the second wave is coming. There's new cases and all these different states and i'm thinking to myself oh boy what are we going to do folks you have to understand the government is not interested in taking care of you it's interested in taking care of itself they're not giving you any information by the way i was reading my textbook preparing for that radio spot on herd immunity and i was brushing up and then i thought to myself well let me go on google i want to google some current um information on herd immunity and all I got was page after page after page after page on Google saying herd immunity won't work, herd immunity won't work, herd immunity won't work, it won't work, it won't work, it won't work, it won't work. This is a joke. It absolutely will work. And unless you're an educated person, you're going on to Google and they're basically telling us in story after story that it won't work. Why are they doing this? Why are they trying to create this hysterical response to the point where we've talked about this on the show, even my own wife is doubting me. This is how powerful this day in and day out, every single channel, every single news outlet, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. It's this never-ending negative um, input of information, and it's getting us all to ignore what's actually happening around us, which is 
we're not all dying. Now, I don't want to get into trouble here. I am not saying there's no threat here. There are clearly people that are dying out there. This is clearly an issue. I'm simply making the observation that this is not different than other crises we faced in the past, but we're imposing on ourselves draconian measures, the worst economic disaster in human history, and I'm and we're ignoring we're ignoring good news. And I'm asking myself, and I'm asking you guys to ask, why is this happening? Now, <clears throat> early on in the disease, I told you I, I'm on these email chains and these text chains where I'm in contact with doctors from around the country and around the world, and we talk about prescient medical issues of the day. Obvious, obviously, COVID-19 is one of those issues. Um, the use of hydroxychloroquine came up. Now, listen hydroxychloroquine to treat coronaviruses has been done in the past. I mean, it's not like this is brand new. It's new related to this coronavirus and um, because this coronavirus is a new strain. But the idea of using hydroxychloroquine to treat coronaviruses has been studied and talked about in the past. Have any of you ever heard that before? Now, the people who are in the field, doctors that I know, in the field are telling me hydroxychloroquine in low doses given early, early, before you need respiratory support, seems to be effective at treating this disease. Now, uh, people immediately came out, oh, it's anecdotal evidence and, and Fauci and Burks. Well, I don't know. There's some dangerous side effects. And I'm thinking to myself, that's odd. I mean, when I prescribe Tylenol, I, you know, if somebody has liver disease or something like that, I'll mention that there's side effects. But it's not the kind of medicine that I really go nuts about, man, this is so dangerous. Well, hydroxychloroquine is a similar medicine. It's been around FDA approved for around 60 or 70 years. It's used in in commonly frail people, people with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus disease. And it's a safe drug that has been used and FDA approved for a very long time. Now, the media immediately, no, 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 it won't work. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what I'm reading. When I go and do my research, there are lots of studies that suggest it could be effective. But the media, no, 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 it's not working. It's not working. Well, people in the field, doctors, were ignoring that information and still prescribing it. And then all of a sudden, they came out and said, no, 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 it's not only not effective, it's dangerous. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? This medicine's been around for 60, 70 years. FDA approved it is not dangerous. But I turn on the TV and everywhere you look, it's dangerous. It's dangerous heart issues and retinal issues. So I go and I talk to my cardiology friends. What's going on? It's like, oh, I've never seen a case in my life. Supposedly, it prolongs the QT interval. It's inside baseball stuff for cardiology. The bottom line is my cardiology friends are like hydroxychloroquine. I've never seen a negative uh, side effect from hydroxychloroquine. Um, I go to my ophthalmology doctor friends, and they say the retinal damage they're talking about is only in very high doses for a very long period of time and is really rare anyway. Well, we're not going to give very high doses for a very long time in patients with coronavirus, so why do they keep talking about it? Well, they then came out with an article in the VA, a study in the VA that said not only is hydroxychloroquine ineffective at the treating of coronavirus, it's killing veterans. And I thought to myself, okay, this is ridiculous. What is happening here? So I go and I grab the VA study. I read the first paragraph and then the first line of the second paragraph. This is not a rigorous study. 
Now, for those of you who listen to the show and, uh, and know me, I've been aware for a very long time that the media will produce and propagate fake studies all the time to achieve political ends. And that is exactly what's happening with this hydroxychloroquine. This VA study was put out there because simply telling us doctors that hydroxychloroquine was ineffective and then just telling us it was dangerous was not stopping us from prescribing the medication. And so they had to come out with a study that said it was killing patients. Now, people like me, people that I'm in contact with on these texts and email chains immediately discredited that VA study. It was such a poor study, and it was easily discredited, and it did not gain any traction. I thought that maybe it would be done there, but no. A little while later, The Lancet, a respected medical journal, came out and said, not only is hydroxychloroquine ineffective, it's killing patients. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? And my doctor friends on these text chains and email chains were just rolling our eyes. And really, it's quite incredulous. What in the world are you talking about? This medicine, FDA approved for 60, 70 years in common use, not dangerous at all. All of a sudden, because Trump said it could be effective, uh, they were preventing us from using it. They came out with the VA study. We didn't buy it. We were still prescribing it. So then they came out with the Lancet study. Now, listen, as an individual doctor, as somebody who understood, I still knew. I didn't care that it was in the Lancet. I knew that there were political forces at work here and something sneaky and dirty and nefarious was going on here. Well, not long after the stu- Now, listen, so the study got published in the Lancet. The FDA immediately came out saying, we're banning use. And I'm thinking, my doctor friends and I are thinking, the FDA can't ban use of hydroxychloroquine. They, can't, they don't have the authority to prevent a doctor from prescribing an FDA-approved medication, period, or off-label. Now, people might not realize, but medications get approved for FDA use in one area and then as we start to use it we notice it works in other areas and so we prescribe medicines off label all the time in fact as many as 40 to 60% of all uh, medicine prescriptions are off label use that's not unusual and it's not bad medicine it's how it's done uh, they immediately came out and um said that we can't be using this hydroxychloroquine off label Uh, And I'm thinking to myself, that's ridiculous. Once a medicine is FDA approved, as long as I have the consent of my patient and as long as I use the medication in the dosages recommended, the intervals recommended, meaning if it's twice a day or three times a day, and for the duration. If they say, you know, you can only use it for a couple months or whatever, as long as I prescribe it within those parameters – and I have the consent of my patient, it doesn't matter the indication. They do not have the power to prevent doctors from prescribing the medicine. You might ask yourself, well, Scott, how did they, how did they prevent it then if they don't have that power? Well, that's an excellent question. What happened was they got to the pharmacists who used this study as a predicate to say, I can't in good conscience fill this script because I can't be killing people out there. And so pharmacists refused to fill the script. So let's say we were out in the community. I had a friend who said, hey, doc, I'm not feeling well. I've got a little cough and feeling a little feverish. I might have said, okay, let me call you in some hydroxychloroquine and zinc and possibly some azithromycin. 
Uh, and what would have happened? That patient would have taken the medicine. And as we've seen through uh, other research and other experiences that within three to five days, they would have gotten better and that would have been the end of it. But that's not what happened. People like me would write a script. The patient would take it to the pharmacy and the pharmacist would refuse to fill the medication. Now, in some blue states, there were governors who repurposed their DEA agents to track down pharmacists and doctors who were prescribing hydroxychloroquine in the community and threatening their medical licenses. And some of these doctors were on these email chains and text chains with me, and they shared with us letters that they got from the DEA that were threatening letters, telling them, you know, you're, you're in violation of FDA and all this kind of stuff. And you know, I wanted to be able to post these letters online and, you know, share it with you guys. But these doctors in these blue states were deathly afraid of being found out and begged me not to share it. And what happened was they were the people that wanted to prevent the prescription of the prescribing of hydroxychloroquine in the community accomplished this task. Now, it gets worse from there. Eventually, The Lancet came out and retracted the story. This respected, no longer, but this previously respected medical journal. Three of the four authors retracted the article saying that they could, the data that they were giving uh, was, was uh, they would not allow it to be reviewed by a third party. So basically, just to read between the lines here, Political powers were giving these people at the Lancet bogus information to which they went and wrote a paper in record time saying that hydroxychloroquine not only wasn't effective, but it was killing people and got us to stop writing hydroxychloroquine, even to the point now where people are sort of, wait a second, where are we at with that? Is a hydroxychloroquine work? Does it not work? And doctors are already... Uh, conditioned, I'm not even going to prescribe it. I, I know that the government is looking out for us, and I don't want to. Um, I don't want to lose my license. So you're seeing this corruption here, right? The whole point of this show is for me to explain to you that the government does not have your best interests at heart. They are not looking out for you, and in fact, in many cases, they're lying to you and they are taking actions that are harming you. And we have to stick together and we have to demand free market reforms to our health care because the decisions that the government makes on our behalf are hurting us and in many cases killing us. Now, the, um, the, 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 the efforts that have gone in to prevent us, these bogus studies and the FDA, all this stuff has been repealed, so I could write hydroxychloroquine now, but the damage has already been done. And you might ask yourself, why would they want to prevent a community doctor from writing hydroxychloroquine and zinc? By the way, whenever they talk about hydroxychloroquine and, and these studies, they always talk about it in patients with end-stage disease, so they're already incredibly sick, and they never talk about it in conjunction with zinc, uh, which is critical in the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. And you need to understand this is not by accident. They want to discredit the medicine. They are invested in discrediting hydroxychloroquine because it hurts Trump uh, and because it will prevent people from being diagnosed with hydroxychloroquine at a hospital which will prevent them from being able to keep those numbers up so that they can justify this lockdown, which is going to tank the economy and, in their view, hopefully prevent Donald Trump from being elected. 
in the meantime, as a physician, I'm thinking to myself, all I want to do is take care of my patients. Why is the government not only not assisting me by at least giving me accurate information, they're going out of their way to preventing me from doing what I was trained to do to take care of my patients. This is disgusting and it's really frightening. And it's why I've dedicated an entire show to talk to you guys about what's going on to open your eyes and help you understand. When they talk about, oh, every person deserves health care, it's a right for everybody, they're lying to you. They want total control over the resources of health care and the power that health care um, has over us, and they want to be able to force us to wear a mask or to keep our clothes down, I mean our schools down, or to um, keep our jobs shut down so that we lose our businesses and become more dependent on the government. This is obvious. This is this is without equivocation. Listen, I'm not a, co- a conspiracy theorist kind of guy. I mean, I you know, I understand the human mind. I understand how human behavior, we do what we're incentivized to do. And I'm simply making observations that any of us can make. And it doesn't matter what the rationale is. They came out with a VA study. It was a lie. The Lancet came out with a study discrediting hydroxychloroquine. It was a lie. The FDA came out saying that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous and killing patients and provided a predicate to prevent the wheels of medicine from prescribing you hydroxychloroquine. Because if you got it from a community doctor and you were able to cure yourself before you went to the hospital where they could count you as another a sick person to keep their numbers up, they couldn't have this. And so in order to prevent this, they banned, in effect, they banned our ability to prescribe this potentially life-saving medicine. Now, there are some other reasons. Uh, there's a medicine called remdesmavir, which is a medicine that uh, <clears throat> is uh, originally designed for Ebola. They want to repurpose it for the coronavirus. They were also working on vaccines, right? Vaccines that, you know, supposedly cure a deadly disease. We can take government tax money and redistribute it to companies who provide this disease. And there are people that will make a financial gain from that. They don't want to have this potential windfall of revenue interrupted by a medicine that is generic and cheap and already on the market. And so there are people that have a vested interest with blocking this. So everything we need to know about why we oppose socialized medicine illustrated in our evaluation of the COVID-19 pandemic and our reaction to it. From what I'm telling you as a doctor who understands the medicine, it is time to send our kids back to school. They have a risk of dying from coronavirus that is less than the flu. It is time for young, healthy people to get back to their businesses and get back to work. We protect the vulnerable people, those people in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions. Those are the people that we want to protect. I'm going to see you guys next time on another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. Um, I'm Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio, and uh, we are supported by Docs for Patient Care, Let's stay in this fight to fight for free market solutions to healthcare and oppose socialized medicine. Have a great day, everybody. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.